This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be talking to the writer Greg Miller, who was also a good friend of Ray Bradbury and received helpful advice on writing from him. If you read any of the biographies of Bradbury, one word comes up again and again. Mentor. As Ray developed as a young writer, he sought advice from more experienced professionals and grew through their mentoring of him. Later in his career, as he developed interests in other fields, art, poetry, theatre, he benefited from mentors in those fields. And once he was established as a writer of note, he found himself paying it forward by mentoring younger writers himself. Bradbury's early professional mentors were writers and editors with long experience of the pulp magazines, which in the 30s and 40s were the prime place for a beginning writer to earn money from their work. Henry Cutner is often identified as one of those early mentors. Cutner was just five years older than Bradbury, but had established a foothold in Weird Tales magazine as early as 1936, when Bradbury would have been 15 or 16. Cutner was part of the H.P. Lovecraft circle, and wrote a number of early works that built on Lovecraft's mythos. Cutler was married to another very successful writer, Catherine L. Moore, C. L. Moore, and together they wrote a number of short stories under a pseudonym Lewis Paget. It's been said that their writing styles were so similar that they could seamlessly finish each other's short stories. According to John Eller's biography Becoming Ray Bradbury, Henry Cutler wrote this to the young Ray. I want you to remember something I've always tried to point out, that no critic is infallible. The best thing a writer can do is to get several critical opinions, consider them, and then go ahead and do as he damn pleases, making use of any of the opinions if he finds them acceptable. Never take my word for gospel or anybody's in the matter of writing. Bradbury credits Cutner for writing the ending of one of his early short stories, The Candle, published in 1942. Now, the list of other people named as mentors of Bradbury at various times is quite long. I'll just give you a few of them. August Derleth, the writer, editor and publisher, and founder of Arkham House. He would become Bradbury's first book publisher. He was older than Ray and established as a writer of note in the early 1930s. Derleth was also part of that Lovecraft circle, and Bradbury sought his advice in the early 1940s. Norman Corwin was the highly regarded writer and director of American radio drama. He offered advice to the young Bradbury and was instrumental in getting Ray to New York for his first meeting with major publishers. Jack Williamson, Edmund Hamilton, Lee Brackett, these three were mostly writers of science fiction and fantasy, all three of them big names in the pulp magazines of the 1940s. And Ray was close to all three. 
Lee Brackett was also well known as a Hollywood screenwriter. Among her credits, some classics, The Big Sleep, The Long Goodbye, The Empire Strikes Back. Lee Brackett in particular would critique Ray's draft stories, and Bradbury and Brackett also occasionally finished each other's stories. Brackett's Lorelei of the Red Mist has a passage by Ray, uncredited, and Ray's story The Scythe has a passage by Brackett, also uncredited. Later in life, when Bradbury was more solidly established as a writer, but anxious to learn more in other fields, he entered a long correspondence with the Italian Renaissance art critic Bernard Berenson. John Eller has written about their relationship at length, and the word mentor comes up again and again in his recounting of Berenson's guiding of Ray. The actor Charles Lawton also mentored Bradbury, helping him with his understanding and practice of poetry and playwriting. In the 1950s, Bradbury made his first attempt to dramatise Fahrenheit 451 for the stage and took Lawton's advice. Now, he later abandoned this early adaptation, partly due to Lawton's influence. Bradbury only gained the confidence to return to adapting Fahrenheit several decades later, after he had mastered the craft of writing one-act plays. Once Bradbury was a proven, accomplished writer, he found himself mentoring as he had been mentored. Among the famous names often mentioned in this regard were the following. George Clayton Johnson, the writer who would create Ocean's Eleven for the screen, pen the first episode of Star Trek to be aired, and co-create Logan's Run. Charles Beaumont, a remarkable and prolific writer of fantasy and horror who contributed some of the best scripts to The Twilight Zone. Richard Matheson, who would write I Am Legend and The Shrinking Man, and also contributed some of the best scripts to The Twilight Zone. Richard Bach, who would write Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and Greg Bear, one of the leading science fiction writers of recent decades and winner of the Hugo and Nebula Awards. Among his well-regarded works are Blood Music and Darwin's Radio. Bear also co-created Comic-Con back in the day. After Ray died, Greg Bear wrote a tribute, which in part said the following. Ray Bradbury is, for many reasons, the most influential writer in my life. Throughout our long friendship, Ray supplied not only his terrific stories, but a grand model of what a writer could be, should be, and yet rarely is. Brilliant and charming and accessible, willing to tolerate and to teach, happy to inspire but also to be inspired, happy to share and even relive a youngster's awkward joy at discovery. Now that sounds to me like a perfect description of a mentor. And that brings me to today's guest, a younger writer than any of those that I've mentioned so far. Greg Miller was born in 1978, and Ray Bradbury once described him as a fresh new talent with a great future. No pressure there, then. 
Greg became friends with Ray in the last decades of Ray's life and had the good fortune to be one of the last writers to benefit from Ray's advice and guidance. Greg's works include the Uncanny Valley stories, some of which show a Bradbury influence. Let's find out how they met and what Greg learned from Ray. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is author Gregory Miller. Greg is a writer of short stories and novels, and his books include Scaring the Crows and The Uncanny Valley. Greg knew Ray Bradbury personally, and some of Greg's books carry a quote from Ray Bradbury, Gregory Miller is a fresh new talent with a great future. Greg, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you, Phil. It's good to be here. And for the benefit of the listeners, I should mention you've got some sort of Godzilla sitting next to you. Do you you want to explain what that is? Yeah, this is a 1970s toy Godzilla that belonged to Ray. It was part of a cake that Mattel made for him to celebrate his 60th birthday in 1980. And so there's even still a sign on it that says, Happy Birthday Ray from Mattel. And there are even some candles still going up the back from 40 years ago. And I uh, inherited that from Ray's family. That was in his basement office for the duration of his life from 1980 until he passed. And so now he kind of guards over my library. (laughs) Brilliant. Tell me, when did you first meet Ray Bradbury? I first met Ray in February of 1996. I was a week away from my 18th birthday, and I had just gotten my driver's license, and I had never driven in a major city before. This was in uh, Baltimore. I lived there for nine years, and there was a big feature article in the Baltimore Sun that Ray Bradbury was going to be in town to give a lecture at Johns Hopkins, and it was only $7. I really didn't think I'd be allowed to go because, you know, it was winter and it was a downtown in a major city. But I actually used a payphone to call my parents during lunch while I was at school and said, hey, Ray Bradbury is going to be in town tonight, one night only. And can I go? And there was a pause. And then my mother said, yeah, you can go. And so I went with two friends. And I remember it was dark and snowy. There were no GPS trackings back then to find your way around, but we found it, and it was a packed house. It was just overflowing to capacity. Ray had only just started to fly a few years before, so he didn't make a lot of East Coast appearances, and it was wonderful. It was everything you could have hoped. You know, there he was. The line to meet him afterwards was literally out the door and down the steps and and around the building, and I was one of the last people. I really wanted to say about, you know, tell him how much his work meant to me. When I got to him, I said, Mr. Bradbury, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And I can't tell you enough how much your work has meant to me. And, and I said this little spiel. And then he looked up and he said, what? And he hadn't heard a thing. So I had to repeat the whole thing. I was nervous, but he took time to talk just for a few minutes. I'm sure he was exhausted. But a couple years later, At my grandparents, I found a pressed Coney Island penny that you would have gotten at the docks. You know, you crank it through the machine from 1901. And I thought, well, Ray loves carnivals, so I'm just going to mail it to him and thank him for taking the time to talk to me. And he absolutely loved it. He said it reminded him of his trip to Coney Island in 1939 for the first World Science Fiction Convention with all of his friends that he took cross-country. 
And that started as correspondence, which led to a friendship. In uh, 2003, he wasn't leaving Los Angeles much anymore. He had had a stroke and he was uh, physically incapable of traveling long distances like that anymore. But he was giving a poetry reading. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to bite the bullet. I was 25 years old and I'm going to fly out there and I'm going to go to the poetry reading. And I wrote him a letter and I said, hey, I'm going to go to this. And I got a call from him. You know, Ray Bradbury called me. That was a big deal. And he said, oh, Greg, don't go to that. That's going to be damn boring. You're not going to like that. Come out and see another one later. And I said, well, Mr. Bradbury, I already bought the ticket. You know, I think I will go just because it seems like a great opportunity. And he said, well, come on out then and we'll try to have some fun. I didn't know what that meant, if it just meant going to see the event or whatever. But I showed up early. I was in the third row. I didn't want to be presumptuous and sit in the first row. And this elderly couple came up to me and said, sir, would you mind, there's a seat in the first row, but would you mind if we sat here because that way I can sit with my wife? And I said, sure, of course. So I moved up. This was at Venice Beach in this little tiny theater. And I ended up sitting right next to Ray. And I had gotten a couple signed Bernard Berenson books for him as a gift, which he loved. So, you know, he and I were really we were kind of interacting in between different poets were taking turns and we would chat in between. And then he said, well, this is a very special night because we have the director of the empire strikes back Irving Kirshner here with us. And that was the man I had given my seat to. And so it was a crash course in Hollywood. You know, I, I was in there, I was in Los Angeles for 18 hours and that was my first meeting with him. And at the end, he said, would you like to go out to dinner with us? And I said, yeah, I would. I would love that. So he took us out to the Pacific dining car and he had me sit on his right side and all the other poets were there. It was just like I'd been knighted, you know, it was just wonderful. And afterwards he said, well, how are you getting home? And I said, well, I hadn't thought of that yet. I have a hotel out by the airport. I'll get a taxi. He goes, no, no, I'll have my chauffeur drive you. I want to swing by the house first and give you something. So he drove us to the big yellow house. And Maggie was there, but she was sleeping, Ray's wife. And Ray took me into his dining room. And he had stacks of his books that his publisher had sent him that he could give to people or give to libraries. And he let me pick any one I wanted. And he inscribed one for me, and he sent me back to my hotel in his limo. The next morning, I went back to Pittsburgh, and that was the start of our friendship. And it lasted from 2003 until he passed in 2012. I went out to L.A. 34 times after that. Friends with his family and friends with his friends and, um, most importantly, friends with him. Excellent. I'm curious about the book. Which book did he sign for you? At the time, One More for the Road had just come out. And so I picked up a copy of that. He had signed some books for me earlier in the evening, and he signed a lot of books for me over the years. He loved doing that. You know, he would write these wonderful inscriptions and doodle them and, and things like that. But that was the one that I, uh, I got from his house the very first time I visited. And that was the first of many, many visits with him. John Eller tells me that over the years, Ray mentored a number of beginning writers. Do you have a sense of what drove him to do this? I think he wanted to pass on what other people had done for him. 
he often talked about Lay Brackett. Her nickname was Muscles because they always met at Muscle Beach in Venice Beach. And, you know, she would read his stories every week and, and critique them. They did that for a period of several years. And he had all these wonderful experiences with these real titans of the field when he was only 18 and 19 years old. You know, Robert Heinlein let him watch while he wrote one time. And Henry Kuttner was a huge help to him. And I really think he wanted to pass that along. You know, one of the first authors that he mentored was Richard Matheson. My gosh, look at how he turned out. He was always very generous. You know, that was something that he always paid forward to other authors. I feel like I was very lucky that I was one of the last of the authors that he mentored, that he had a real hands-on approach with. Gosh, for years, I'd send him a story every week or two. I would send them to his daughter, who would then fax them to him in a larger font so he could see it easily. And that afternoon, I'd get an email or a call back from him. You know, he would either dictate the answer to his daughter who would email it to me, or he would just call me directly. And I had this extraordinary mentor, my hero, my literary hero, my hero in all kinds of ways. Sometimes it would be as simple as saying something like, I think the ending needs a little work. I think the message is a bit oblique and you should rethink how you are presenting that. Other times it would be very detailed. And on a couple of occasions, which still kind of amazes me, this happened at least twice, but once in particular I can think of, I got an email back from him. He had dictated it to his daughter who had sent it to me and said, Greg, I hope you don't mind, but I felt that you had a great story, but the ending needed a little work, so I wrote one for you. And that's Ray Bradbury writing an ending to one of my stories. And he goes, and if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. I hope you don't mind that I did this. Mind? I mean, what a gift. I had the extraordinary opportunity to have to, sort of surreal opportunity, to kind of edit Ray's work into mine. So it sort of worked seamlessly. And I used it. And I told him, I said, look, I'll give you credit for this if you want. And he goes, no, no. He goes, this is what people did for me. You know, someone wrote the ending to one of my stories once, and I worked with Leigh Brackett, and uh, I think it was Henry Kuttner that wrote the ending paragraphs to one of his stories. I think it was The Candle, but he wouldn't take credit for it. And to this day, I've, I've asked people, and they've never been able to guess which story it is. So that was just a little gift between him and me. But that's why he did it, I think. He wanted people to have the opportunity that he had when he was just starting out and it was very hard to get the attention of people, but good people who he admired came through for him. Mm. When had you started writing? Um, when you first met him, were you already writing at that point? Yes, I was. I've been writing for a number of years. When I went out to LA for the first time, I was 25. When I met him for the first time, I was 17. And I was already writing when I was 17. But I think by the time I turned 25, I was finally starting to find my voice a bit. You know, I was starting to write a few stories that I thought, those are decent. Those are good. Those are the ones that I felt comfortable sharing with him. And so, uh, yes, you know, he was the one who inspired me to start. In seventh grade, I was in a study hall at my school, and the boy next to me was reading The Martian Chronicles, a beat-up paperback of The Martian Chronicles. He had to go to the bathroom, and I picked it up, and I turned to page one, and we ended up getting into an argument about it because I didn't want to give it back to him. I remember thinking to myself, if I could write half as well as him at some point in my life, I would be 
very, very happy. I remember just the power of the language. Recognizing that power that can be found in language, directly and indirectly, maybe want to be a teacher too. So I'm a high school English teacher, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. I don't think I'd be a teacher more than likely if it wasn't for picking up that book as well. So I started writing and I started teaching because I picked up the books of Ray Bradbury when I was 13. Have you ever thought about how your life might have turned out if it was some other author that you picked up at that point? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've always loved reading, but no one ever resonated for me like him. Ray shared with his readers some of his knowledge of how to generate ideas and formulate stories and so on in books like Zen and the Art of Writing. Did he ever share any particular wisdom or tips with you, apart from the feedback on your own stories? Did he ever give you his theories of how stories worked? Yes. His favourite word when something wasn't quite working right was ruminate. Ruminate on it. And he said, it'll come to you. You know, one of his favorite stories to tell was how when he was writing the screenplay for Moby Dick in Ireland with John Huston back in 1953 and 1954, he had a very tough time. He was under a lot of pressure and dealing with, you know, Huston was a handful, to put it lightly. He said one day he simply woke up and he said, I am Herman Melville. And he knocked out the last 25 or 30 pages of the screenplay in one day. He just simply had to sort of let it happen. It had to be the right time. He couldn't push it. It just had to occur. And another time, he and Houston were talking about a particularly tricky part of the screenplay. And Ray said, I'm going to put this under my pillow, so to speak, and I'm going to sleep on it. And in the morning, I'll have the answer. And John Houston said, oh, that's no, that's nonsense. And, And he said, no, you just let's try. Let's try it. And they both came up with the solution. Houston and Ray came back to the table the next day and they worked it out. Ray often felt that he was at his most creative right before and right after waking. He called it his theater of the morning. And he felt that his subconscious would speak very clearly to him then. I think the main message that he had to a lot of authors, not just me, was that you shouldn't push it you shouldn't force it or it'll be DOA. It'll be dead on arrival and it won't be sincere and it won't be authentic and it won't be good work, but just wait and your mind will be working on it behind the scenes and then it'll let you know when the time comes. And he's always been right, always. That's how it works. That's worked with me many, many times and things will just fall into place. I could be taking a walk late at night and I'll just be alone with my thoughts and something will come to me and it'll be something small that'll lead to something big, either in a problem with a plot I'm having or with a story idea or something like that. The other advice that is extremely important is a famous quote of his, you mustn't talk about doing things, you simply must do things. You know, you've probably heard that one. Nothing could be more true. During the school year, it's very difficult for me to write because I have so many obligations with my students, but I take notes and I'll edit and I'll do things like that that allow me to sort of get ready for the summer when I can really write. But during the summer, like now, every day, six out of seven days a week, sometimes seven out of seven, I write 500 words minimum every single day. No excuses. It doesn't matter what you're doing. After I talk with you, I'm going to go out to a local coffee shop and I'm going to do my day's writing. That's how you do it. If you do it every day, 
it can't all be bad. If you do it every day, you'd be amazed at how much you've got done in a month or in 60 days or in 90 days. That's how you get it done. Ray's philosophy was to hell with it, get your work done. No matter what's going on in your life, get your work done. And my philosophy is similar. It's just get the job done. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what detours you have to take, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how odd the path may be from the way you imagined it, get the job done. And that's what he taught me. A lot of people like to talk about doing things, but the difference between successful and unsuccessful people is simply getting it done. You can't devote yourself to something to that extent and not pick up on how to do it. You don't have to be a natural, the way some people call it. You simply have to work hard and it'll come. It'll come. And so that's another thing I learned from him. I apply that to all aspects of my life, but you see it very forthright in my writing and my schedule for my writing. Of the writing that you do, I mean, you, you do a certain amount every day and that generates a quantity. How much of that turns into kind of publishable fiction? Well, I always think it's better to have too much than too little, you know, so I'll follow ideas. And, you know, this summer I've been working on the third book in the Uncanny Valley series. And I had little notes, not necessarily full plots, but ideas and beginnings and scenarios. And so far, every single one of those this summer has led to a story. I think I've done 11 of them so far this summer. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes you get to an idea and you have to say, all right, well, this isn't working. I'll set it aside. I'll move on to something else. But you just never know. With these books, they're a bit piecemeal. You know, they kind of fit together like a puzzle due to their structure. They're sort of story chapters. And so a lot of times I'll find some in the final process of putting the book together that don't fit. And you simply take them out. Or if you feel one or two are weak, you take them out. And maybe this later on, years later, they might become strong. You might find them again and you might rewrite them and they might become much better. But I don't throw anything away. You know, I, I keep it all. And sometimes you get surprised by the direction that a project takes. You might have a little idea that turns into a big story or you might think you have a great idea and it doesn't pan out. But it's always better to have too much than too little. And so I always just file away the stuff that I've completed that I don't feel fits in at the moment. I noticed on your blog that you referred to um, story chapters, not stories so much, not chapters, but story chapters. And that put me very much in mind of a number of Ray's books, which are, they're not novels, they're not short story collections, they're some strange thing in between. Does that hold true for yours as well? Oh, sure, sure. And I'm sure that was an influence. Obviously, he had an immense influence on me. And if you look at Dandelion Wine or The Martian Chronicles, those are what he called uh, short story collections pretending to be novels, you know? Yeah, with the uncanny stories, it's just they all take place from a different point of view of someone in the town. So they're all told in the first person, but by different people. So you see narrators in some stories, you'll see them as background characters in others. And then they all sort of zero in on a main plot point toward the end. You know, there's always a little bit of a kicker, a connection. In the second book, which really was a novel, I took that to a different level and I had a very cohesive beginning to end linear story that was a very long one. It was a, a 450 page book. But the first book and the one I'm working on now are story chapters that they all feed this collective plot but they're also very individualized as well. I could pull a lot of those out and send them out as individual stories. 
And I think that's kind of nice because it allows you to try new things and get to know new characters in new ways and, and also present things to the reader in an interesting way. It's amazing how well it works with Ray, with Dandelion Wine or the Martian Chronicles, where the famous story of him going back to the YMCA when he went to New York City in 1949 and the uh, publisher, an editor at Doubleday said, do you think you could weave these stories of Mars together into a cohesive project? And he said, I can absolutely do that. And he went back to the YMCA because he couldn't afford a hotel and he banged out an outline and he came back to Los Angeles with a two book contract in his pocket. And it worked wonderfully because, as he would often say, his strength was as a short story writer. But it was amazing what he could do with those stories to tell a larger picture when you weave them together. It's a wonderful effect, and it's not easy, but he really pulled it off beautifully. And there aren't too many writers who cope in that same way, I don't think. I mean, back in the days of the pulp magazines, there was this tradition of publishing a work piecemeal in the magazines and then issuing it collected together as a novel. But I think Ray's books were always much more fragmentary than most of those. Yes, they were all individual, salable short stories on their own. So you could have the Lensman series by Doc Smith or something being serialized, but those were novels, and, and they'd be serialized over four issues of Astounding Stories. It's amazing when you look at the stories that ended up in the Martian Chronicles in how many different magazines they were individually published in totally unrelated to one another on the surface uh, before he stitched them together into that book. Yeah, they, they're all very good standalones, except for the little bridge chapters that he wrote to connect them, which he was inspired by after reading Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. And so it was a wonderful method of creating a, a novel, so to speak, and it really worked beautifully. But it is very unique. I agree with you. Yeah. You've talked a bit about how you first sort of discovered Bradbury and you, you were sort of looking over the shoulder of somebody in a schoolroom. But can you talk a bit more about your early readings of Bradbury? Like, Presumably Rocket Summer was the first story you read if it was the Martian Chronicles that you picked up. Yeah, it just pulls you right in. Ray was quick to say that the Martian Chronicles isn't science fiction. It's modern myth. It's fantasy. He said those are the Egyptian pharaohs and those are all the great elements of myth. It's an impossible scenario. It's an impossible world. It's not real. Who cares? You know, that was what was so great. You never got bogged down by technical jargon. You had a sense of wonder in every single chapter. And it was mainly created by the locations his descriptions, and his characters. That's all you needed. And because of that, I think it's an immortal book. You know, it'll never really get outdated, no matter how far into the future it's read. It's haunting, you know, when they talk about the ice being blasted off the houses when the rocket went up and women let off their woolly bear jackets and stared up at the flaming trail of the rocket going up into the sky, and you're hooked. You can't put it down after that. And then the very next story is Yilla, where you have this extraordinarily beautifully wrought Martian culture. And you have the husband with a gun of killer bees, bone towns and, and crystal villages and uh, water running through over the stones on the inside of your house. I mean, my God, who couldn't be pulled in by that type of writing? Ray said that he really hit his stride when he came up with those 
appendices, those sort of prose poem descriptions. The Martian Chronicles is full of those. A lot of his best work is. In my classes, I always talk about showing versus telling. And I read the scene in A Sound of Thunder where they first see the T-Rex come crashing through the undergrowth. That is one of the best descriptions by any author I have ever read. That's why you love him. You know, that and the sense of wonder that his ideas, his mind invokes. When you take that description and couple it with the scenarios that he's presenting to you, there's nothing like it. That's true if you're reading him when you're 12 years old or when you're 90. It's extraordinarily captivating. Do you think there is a particular age, though, where people will be grabbed by Bradbury? Because nearly everybody that I've spoken to, when you ask them, when did they first read Bradbury? It's usually around 10, 11 or 12 years old. And I often wonder whether there's a unique window of time there that if people came to Bradbury later, it wouldn't work for them. Yes, it's interesting. I think there's two sides to that, depending on what you read of his. I think that, yes, it's an extraordinary age, 12, 13, 11, to read him for the first time. You've got a reader for life at that point, you know, most of the time. And my kids, my students love him. My school was clearing out a set of beat up old copies of The Illustrated Man. And I said, can I have those? It was like 45 copies of it. And they gave me every single one. And I took them up to my classes and I said, the school is getting rid of these. And I hold up this big stack. I want every single one of you to take one of these. And I don't care if you read it right away, you can use it as a doorstop, you can lose it in your room, do whatever you need, but I want you to keep this book. Let me know what you think of it sometime. And I've heard back from almost every single one of those kids, and they loved it. They all loved these battered, beat-up old copies of The Illustrated Man. And they're 15 and 16. Even now in the, in the technology age, we're all addicted to our phones and everything. They love the opportunity to dig into an old beat-up paperback and have their imaginations taken away in a story like Kaleidoscope or The Velt or something like that. On the other hand, when I started teaching at my current school, the ninth graders were reading Dandelion Wine and none of them liked it. The teacher couldn't figure it out. And I thought it was very simple. I didn't like Dandelion Wine when I was 13 either. The reason is it's a book about remembering what it's like to be 13 and being brought back to how you felt when you were that young, but from an adult point of view. It's tinged through nostalgia and memory and longing. I think you have to be a bit older to read that book. And it's my favorite book of all time, categorically. Dandelion Wine is my favorite book of all time by any author I've ever read. I remember for my 14th birthday, my parents gave me my own copy of The Martian Chronicles and my own copy of Dandelion Wine. And Dandelion Wine sat on the shelf for about four or five years, and I didn't read it for the first time until I was 18 or 19. And then I absolutely fell in love with it. And I think that is a book that is appreciated more as you go through life, you know, and as you try to connect with your younger self. I don't think you could enjoy it when you're 13 because you're living it at that point. You're living those times. Danny Linewine is meant to take you back to those times. So it depends on the work. It depends on the work. Have you ever read or seen the play version of Dandelion Wine? Yes, I have. Yes. 
I saw it with Ray, actually, in Los Angeles one time when it was being performed. Uh, because in there, the character Doug Spaulding returns as an adult character and interacts right. with his younger self. So that kind of validates what you were saying, that Dandelion Wine really is about an older person's reflection back on the past. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? It's like that poem, Remembrance, where he finds the note that his younger self wrote to his older self buried in a knot in a tree. And the young boy says to his older self, I remember you. So there is that relationship between your younger and older self. And I thought it was nice how he incorporated that in a way in that play. I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Now, I think you may have already answered this question implicitly. If I were to maroon you on a desert island and say that you can only have one piece of Bradbury with you, what would you choose? Yep, that would be the one. Yeah, Danny Line Wine would be the one. I have the edition that I read when I was a kid. It's amazing. I, I read it almost every summer to start off summer with. And I think it's one of those books that you'll constantly get something out of throughout your life, like The Great Gatsby or you know some of the other great classics. And you find new things to cherish in it, along with the older ones, depending on where you are in life. That's a perfect example. You know, Dandelion Wine is full of everything. It has some of the most beautiful stories about aging and loss and grief and growing up, but it also has some one of the scariest stories ever written, which is The Whole Town Sleeping, about Lavinia Nebs going through the ravine while the lonely one's on the loose. That is one of the great suspense stories. I find it almost incomparably good. I always love going back to it. I read that for the first time when I was 18. I'm 42 now. I would take that with me in a heartbeat. I remember sending a message through Ray's daughter to him when I was about to have surgery on my leg. I was stuck. I had broken my leg and I was having um, reconstructive surgery to put a plate in it. I told him, I said, well, I'm here with my copy of Danny Lyon Wine, you know, uh, <laughs> just because it's a fallback. You can always go back to it and find comfort in it and, and joy in it and wonder in it. So uh, that'll be one that I'd take with me. And you've spoken about your day job of being an English teacher. Do you get to use Bradbury much in your teaching? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah. When it comes to short stories, they're wonderful because they give us a lot of free reign as far as what we're allowed to use. You know, we have the core curriculum, but any kind of supplemental curriculum we want, they're very good at trusting us to pick things that are appropriate. And so over the years, I've used, depending on the unit, a lot of his short stories. I used to teach an Edgar Allan Poe unit. And at the very end of the unit, after we'd read The Mask of the Red Death and The Fall of the House of Usher and The Cask of Amontillado, I'd read Usher 2. And the kids just loved it. You know, it's one of the great revenge stories of all time where books have been banned and this man makes a second house of Usher on Mars and kills all the book censors using the characters from Edgar Allan Poe. And right as the book burners being walled up alive a la, you know, the cask of Amontillado, the protagonist says, you know why you're here. It's because you burn these books without reading them. And if you had read them, you would have known what was going to happen to you long ago, and it wouldn't have happened at all. And the kids love that. I've read parts of Fahrenheit with them. I've read Kaleidoscope with them, A Sound of Thunder, The Exiles, when we did our unit on censorship, because that also ties in with it. And so it's wonderful. He's always a favorite. The kids just love Ray Bradbury. And when Ray was with us, I would tell him that, and he would absolutely love that. 
and it makes me extremely happy now in the year of his 100th birthday that he's still very much with us the kids love his work just as much as they ever did he is as respected and revered and beloved by readers as he ever was i think more than anything that's what he would have loved to see happen he always said that one of his dreams was that sometime in the future a boy would be on mars reading the martian chronicles with a flashlight under a blanket and i think we're headed in the right direction based on the way the school kids respond to his work and again you've preempted this question but i'll i'll ask it anyway um <laughs> as an author what are you working on currently I can't say too much about it, but I will say that the Uncanny Valley books have just been optioned for television by a, a major production company. It was a real surprise. I got an email while I was at lunch in school one day that led to a contract being signed for a series. So I'm very excited to see what happens with that. That's in the works right now. So as I follow along on that slow but sure process, you know, hopefully something will come of it. I am working on the third uncanny valley book right now which is you know another nice collection of first person stories it's already about 230 pages long it's about 27 or 28 stories so far and i'm having a blast with it it's a lot of fun now and then i'm working on an independent short story here and there what i try to do is i try to put out a book of short stories then do an uncanny valley book then another book of short stories and so on to keep things fresh I recently published a book of 31 stories to be read in October leading up to Halloween, and it's called Dark Nights and Candlelight. And the idea is that it's kind of an, a literary advent calendar, except it's counting down the days to Halloween, not Christmas. So you pick it up and you read one story a day and it gets you in the mood for the holiday. You know, I always feel like the build up to holidays are usually more fun even than the holidays themselves. So that's my latest project that I've published. And now that that's out, that came out about a year and a half ago. Uh, I've been working on the third Uncanny Valley book. And I've seen some of your books, well, I don't know if the word rely is correct, but they use illustration um, mm -hmm. as a, an integral part of the book. H how important is illustration to you? Well, the illustrator is John Randall York. And believe it or not, I met him because, gosh, about 17 or 18 years ago, I commissioned him to do a Ray Bradbury painting. For my house i had purchased a halloween tree painting he did a, a 14 by 14 inch canvas and i wanted something to go with it and he did me a from the dust returned house and we hit it off he lives in tyler texas he's illustrated just about every one of my books since 2009 we're a real team and ray loved john's work and he said our collaboration reminded him of him and joe mugnani and I thought, well, it doesn't get much better than that. That's a heck of a compliment. He just sort of understands how to process my ideas beautifully through illustration. The Halloween book, for example, doesn't have any interior illustrations, but he did do the cover. He's certainly already working on the third Uncanny Valley book. I think we have eight illustrations done. If you have the right illustrator and you understand where he's coming from and he understands where you're coming from, it can be a very powerful, very effective collaboration. When you think of... Fahrenheit 451, you think of the book, but you also think of the Mugnani illustrations, the famous Burning Man cover, and that's a collaboration that lasted 50 years. So if you have the right illustrator, it can really add a great deal of impact to your work. 
one art form complementing the other and vice versa. So that can be very effective and very powerful um, if you have the right person to work with. Do you ever start with a, an illustration and write a story for the picture? Not yet. I know Ray had done that a couple of times in an unexpected way. Ray wrote a story called, I'm, I'm going to get the title wrong, but it was about Route 66. And it was about these models who had dressed up as, I guess they called them Okies, you know, back in the day, who were driven west because of the depression and the models were dressed up in these tattered clothes but they were you know like vogue models ray saw those in a magazine and was infuriated by it because he had lived through the depression he had known hardship and he had known just how brutal that was just like my grandparents did and so he wrote a story based on those photographs where these models start getting killed off by the ghosts of the migrant workers who cross the dust bowl into california trying to find work so i know that once in a while that would happen with ray he would see an, an image and that would inspire a story i can't think of any others off the top of my head but with me not so much not so much if listeners would like to find out more about your work where would be a good place for them to go yeah i have a site it's a blog site it's author gregory miller at wordpress.com my stuff's available on amazon you can drop me a line Anytime you'd like, I'm happy to chat or email or message you. You know, I'd love to know what you think of my work. You know, it's, it's just wonderful because, you know, Ray's been gone now for, it's hard to believe it, but for eight years. I still feel very close and connected to him. Our friendship was very special. I saw him as an honorary grandfather and one of my best friends, and I miss him dearly. But I, I still feel, as I said earlier, like he's very much with us. And the time when I feel the most connected with him is when I'm writing. The fact that he took a chance on a young author just based on my enthusiasm. He, he told me that right before he passed, he said, you know, it's love that brought you here and it's your love and your enthusiasm for me. And, and that's reciprocated by me for you. I take that very seriously. I never ever take his confidence in me, the time he spent on me, his love toward me and his friendship with me for granted. I think it would be a great disservice to him if I was ever to slack off, to not work to the fullest of my capabilities. I think if you want to find my love to him, it's in my work. So I hope you have a chance to check it out and, and see for yourself if you can find it too. Great. Thank you, Greg, for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. It was a great time. My thanks to Greg Miller for joining me today. I'll have links to Greg's books and website on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. And please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.